Hey, Quinn. Nice tan, Lindsay. Thanks. I just got back from Cuba. Oh, by the way, what is going on with Viral? The Viral Empire continues to expand. Oh, man, tell me more. Well, as everyone knows, empires are measured by the number of social media accounts they have. Clearly. And the Viral Podcast is proud to have its own Twitter page, its own Facebook page, along with the website at viral-pod.com. Cool. I hope people don't get confused that it's an actual website about some sort of infectious pod. And not like it's going to give you in your computer a virus. It won't. It won't. We promise. Unless the virus is infectious knowledge. Ooh, sick burn. Wait. (laughs) I guess that's... Who's being burned in that scenario? I hope no one. Okay. Well, uh, I hope you guys enjoy episode four. Um... And if you want to, please, we would very much appreciate. Go on to iTunes, leave us a review. Uh, let us know what you think about the podcast. And uh, all right, enjoy. Okay. Hi, I'm Quinn. And I'm Lindsay. Hey, Lindsay. Is public health a luxury or a human right? You know, that question has come up a lot lately. And, you know, it's really made me think about whether or not I should get a pap smear or maybe get the next iPhone. That is an important choice we all have to make. Or do we? Dun, dun, dun. So today, we are going to take a deep dive into philosophical issues that are complex, awkward, and politically charged. Our intention is to describe the arguments for and against the idea that public health interventions and providing affordable access to health care as a public health issue is a human right and thus something in all of our best interests. But don't worry, there will be a reward for you at the end, so stick with it. Candy? <laughs> Maybe. That that would be great. Is that well oh god, that's really not very public healthy. Is I it? guess not. Although we do have a bag of sour patch kids here on the table while we record. Don't tell people. That's a little uh behind-the-scenes look at the viral podcast. That I hope people wanted. Anyway. Okay, so, in what is called the preamble, a fancy word for introduction to the United States Constitution, it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Article 25 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that everyone has a right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. (sighs) That sounds awesome. That's quite a bit of a word salad. And can you tell that there's a little bit of a difference between these two definitions? More than uh, one is a lot wordier than the other? Yeah, just just a little bit of a difference. The United Nations specifically lists health and other health related things like food and housing as rights to which all people are entitled. Another difference, one was written in 1948 and the other was written in 1776, a difference of 172 years. A lot has happened in those 172 years. 
the Industrial Revolution, suffrage, the invention of Cheez-Its, I'm sure other things. Those are all very high-ranking scientific contributions. (laughs) So we have a bit of a disagreement here with very real policy implications that can change people's lives. When we talk about a right, what definition do we use? If you're rolling your eyes right now, so am I, because yes, of course, there are several definitions. A right is, quote, that which is morally correct, just, or honorable. A right is, quote, a moral or legal entitlement to something. There are natural rights that we believe exist by the very nature of you and I having beating hearts and breathing the air on this planet. And for me to infringe, or in other words, limit your rights is morally and legally wrong. But who defines what's moral? Curiouser and curiouser down the rabbit hole this thing goes. And I know that this is some pretty heavy stuff, but it's also pretty revolutionary considering the fact that for the duration of human history, thousands and thousands of years, we either belonged to a landowner, an emperor, a king, a queen, or some other ruler who we believed quite literally owned not only us, but the ground beneath our feet, and as long as we stayed out of their way, they would leave us alone. It wasn't a light bulb moment for human beings in the 1700s either. There are many instances of revolutions where, for instance, during the English Civil War in the 1600s, there was quite a hubbub over liberty of the individual and their rights in law against a tyrannical government. Hmm. And they flirted with the idea of giving every citizen, well, landowning males at least, certain natural rights regardless of class status. Ironically, it was England on the other side of that during the American Revolution, but I digress. Public health involves this idea of systems thinking, or the idea that successful solutions to complex problems must involve a thorough examination of linkages and interactions between multiple components that comprise the entirety of a system. So here's an example to kind of ground this philosophical blah, blah, blah stuff. The World Health Organization estimates that there are 1.5 million child deaths each year due to inadequate sanitation, mostly caused by biological disease agents and chemical pollutants that comprise drinking water, that compromise drinking water, leading to diarrheal diseases. That calculates to one preventable death every 20 seconds. Wow. Yeah. So how do you prevent this? Sanitation infrastructure. Sewer lines that don't get clogged and back up. That aren't dumped into rivers and streams where drinking water is harvested. All the fun things like that which we in the United States take for granted in 2017. So Lindsay, can you go to Walmart and pick up sanitation infrastructure? No, I don't think that they have that currently, but who knows? Maybe down the road they will. However, governments have the ability to construct infrastructure to make up, to make sure that poop doesn't end up in the drinking water. What a novel idea. (laughs) So here's your 30-second history of water sanitation in the United States. Ready? Yes. Go. Until the mid-1800s, fast-growing American cities didn't have sewers that rely and relied on wells within the city for drinking water. When the cities outgrew that, they built centralized water supply systems that often tapped water resources 
outside city limits and piped the water in. New York City was one of the first to do this. However, this water wasn't treated in any way. When our buddy Jon Snow established the link between contaminated water and disease through his discovery of the well on Broad Street that was giving everyone cholera, water treatment plants began popping up that used chlorine and sand filters. However, sewers taking wastewater, i.e. poop, along with rainwater, were discharged into rivers, lakes, and sea without treatment. Gross. The federal government didn't get involved until the Federal Water Pollution Control Act of 1948. Remember 1948, the same year the UN definition of human well, rights was established. what a co dink. And through a series of amendments and other acts like the Clean Water Act, we now have a more or less complete system of water treatment plants that protect human health and the health of the environment as well. In fact, in the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, they specifically list benefits to public health and welfare, using taxpayer dollars to fund public health. Poor sanitation leading to disease and death interfered with our rights under the Constitution to life, liberty, and happiness, and so we did something about it. What do you think? That's, I mean, it seems like they had no choice. Right, and and I feel like we wouldn't necessarily, if we were to cut programs, look at, why don't we just do away with the whole sanitation infrastructure thing? Well, we see that now, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are on the line right now as we speak, so... Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, Well, okay, so we have this example, we think about health in a... In a, in a broad context, but what about the other side of the argument? I want to try and be fair and provide um, a different viewpoint as well. How can something be a right when I can choose to eat McDonald's every day of my life, and even though I may be technically loving it, I could also die at 40 from a massive stroke? Saying that I can't do that or that I shouldn't do that infringes on my right to collect every Happy Meal toy and shove those tasty burgers into my gaping maw until it kills me. Right? Oh, that's a can of worms. (laughs) can of delicious McWorms. Ew. Those who argue that health does not count as a human right say that a right is something given to you. It's something that no one can take away. The argument there is that health is a desired outcome that each individual is free to pursue as a result of their other unalienable rights. When supporters of the idea say that health is a human right, they say that we have an obligation not just to refrain from causing harm, but act in such a way to support everyone's health needs and relinquish part of their income to a state body so that they may finance health services to someone, presumably someone sick or poor, who is in need. Something cannot be a right if it violates the negative definition of rights, meaning something that can't be taken away. Basically, in layman's terms, according to that definition, rights are restraints on action rather than obligations to act. Therefore, it is a right, it is right and just to leave people alone so that they may be free to enjoy their rights. Interesting. So I think one thing that really, that came up in my mind was, I guess the difference between is health a right or is health care a right? Ooh, that leads me into my next little example. Okay. Good segue, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. 
Because of the system we are in now, access to healthcare is inexorably linked to the presence or absence of insurance. Dun, the dun, big I dun. word. How we got this way might be a topic for another episode, but basically it's because the cost of health services, doctor's visits, emergency room visits, surgery, medications, are very high in the United States right now. What else is linked to insurance that we can think of? Mm, the ACA. Oh, yes, but maybe outside of the realm of health. Mm, my pocketbook? Oh, well, and dri- driver's insurance. Yeah, car insurance. Yeah. So let's look at the example of car insurance. There are some key differences, but I feel like we can talk about it in a little different It's a commonly way. used uh example as well. So So car insurance and the debate over the mandate to get car insurance goes back a hundred years to the history of cars themselves. It was apparent pretty early on that driving a car greatly increased your chances of getting smashed by that car. Huh. Go figure. (laughs) Yes. Massachusetts and Connecticut were the first states to make insurance mandatory, basically creating a pool of drivers who would help cover the cost of drivers who get in accidents where they were not at fault. The good drivers help out other good drivers when they encounter a bad driver, to put it simply. So for all you bar trivia people, here's a fun fact. New Hampshire is the only state that doesn't mandate car insurance for all drivers. Even today? Yeah, it's at the state level, not a federal level. Interesting. I did not know that. At least it, it was true when I researched this. So, Gosh darn internet. Um, you just have to prove in New Hampshire that you're able to pay for damages in the cost in the case of an accident where you're at fault. Hmm. Yep. Why do we mandate car insurance, but with health insurance, it seems different. It's mandated as of now, but we see this discussion happening at that within Congress and all across the country that we shouldn't have to mandate health insurance well they really are two different kinds of insurance and again depending on your political allegiances you might see this differently liability car insurance that's the one that's mandated it protects you against other drivers messing you up and it exists based on the notion that when a bad driver harms a good driver society pays for that good driver being harmed Whereas health insurance, at least the, the, the argument here is that health insurance is supposed to be for your own protection and your family's protection, not for other people you may harm accidentally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a little bit of the evidence. Here's what I think about this. We talked about how sanitation systems have an impact on health, and we know that we can get sick from other people, not at fault of ourselves. So it seems kind of narrow-minded to believe that we live in our own world where every health-related decision we make affects only us. Right. Also, when you don't have health insurance and need emergency care, the costs of that don't just magically go away. Exactly. Uh, They still come back to hurt us all and make things more expensive for everyone. The conventional definition of health, I believe, is too narrow and too focused on the health care point of view. 
human beings don't live in bubbles where every action they take results in either a positive or negative reaction concerning their health. If someone next to you at the bus stop is smoking, does that affect your lungs? Absolutely. Yeah. So whether you choose it to or not, that negatively impacts your health. We can't just decide to not breathe the air for a few minutes. Genetics also plays a role. You don't, ac- you don't exactly get to choose your genes. Gender, race, sexual orientation, and geography also play a role in health. But those, again, are not all under your individual control. So it would seem that if we are born with a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but an insurance company charges more for a woman than a man, or that infant mortality is much higher in African-American communities for a variety of reasons, that certain rights are being infringed upon. I agree. We do live in a society where we get to make decisions that affect our health, and I hope that people would make the healthy choice, but they don't have to. However, I do believe it's important that the health choices you make don't negatively impact the health of someone else, mm-hmm. and that we all need to ensure access to things like clean drinking water, vaccines, affordable housing, nutritious food, and affordable health insurance, and that all of those things combined is what we call health, and that anything which limits those things is in fact limiting a human right. So the founding fathers of America, we love talking about them in this country. They were all pretty smart dudes who were ahead of their time, except for all the slave-owning, misogyny. Yeah, there's kind of that part too. Racism. Not great. We don't like to talk about that, but it's still important to remember that they were not perfect. Duly acknowledged. But it's another distraction from real issues to ask, what would the founding fathers think about health care? Why do we keep doing this? That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. I, I would like to point out, and I found an interesting example, that Alexander Hamilton, famous rapper, and yes. arch nemesis Thomas Jefferson agreed on the 1792 establishment of marine hospitals paid by a tax that all merchant ships were, were required to pay in order to give sailors access to a public health care system. Hmm. In their point of view, you were not allowed to not support health care for sailors if you wanted to use American ports. Interesting. So I thought that was interesting because these two guys hated each other. But they both pretty much believed that, yeah, sailors, they're doing a good thing. We need to provide them with health care. Right. And their job is obviously very dangerous. They're exposing themselves to, you know, different diseases, especially going to different ports. So, huh. Well, I will say, going back to your example of, you know, uh, car insurance, for instance, you can choose most of the time to have a car, right? And therefore, that's why you need insurance. However, you can't choose to have a body. That's true. And all of the things that coming with a body right. has. Exactly. Like, you know, some of us have a lemon where we don't have <laughs> oh. great great genes. And Way to be ableist. I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> um, 
hey, I may have been referring to myself in that. Who knows? But no, I mean, it goes back to the argument that we can't choose our genes. And now that we understand more about, you know, the social determinants of health, right? Like that it's not just disease and genetics that impact health, but it's also geography, racism, you know, um, your access to food, all of these different things impact health. And a lot of them, like we said, are not within our locus of control. So if we can't choose those things, but we know that they impact health and can inevitably make us very, very sick, despite whatever we may do to try and combat that, you know, how can you put the blame for somebody, you know, on getting sick? Right. And if we truly had equal opportunities Due to this natural right to health, everyone would be able to seek the highest level of health possible for them, regardless of race, sexual orientation, income level, etc. But the fact is we don't. Right. Well, and... At this time. You know, it, it also made me think about when I worked in tobacco prevention, you know, one of the things that we worked on was, you know, tobacco policy at... Um, not only the local level, but among employers, right? Because the whole, there's that whole argument that if I'm employed by a company and I have group insurance through my employer, why am I paying into this pool when I know my coworkers are smoking, right? And this is kind of where employee wellness comes in. Employee wellness can give people the opportunity to get the nicotine patch. They work with the health department, you know, to also provide cessation classes, those sorts of things, versus saying, hey, you're smoking, you either, and there have been some, actually court cases saying that, you know, there have been some companies that um, have denied people employment due to smoking. But, you know, I think it's making sure that people have all the opportunities that they, that they can to um, promote healthier behaviors versus being punitive, right? And it's not to say that Sometimes there has to be, I guess, like what you would consider a punitive measure. But, you know, people, I think, respond better to things when they feel like they have a choice versus not. And, yeah, health is a very complicated, I don't know. I mean, so to answer the question posed in the episode title, Mm -hmm. I think I would say that you can't have life, liberty, and happiness if you don't have health. In the most basic sense. I totally agree. Shelter, food, water, fresh air, and access, equal access to healthcare. So the caveat here is that we have a choice of the qualities of certain aspects Mm -hmm. of what we eat, the the healthcare that we we choose to utilize, um, how often we utilize it, as long as it's available at a foundational level for everyone. Right, right. Yes, I agree. Um, and I think that, it to me, I wish that we could have this conversation on a more logical and nonpartisan sure. uh, level, especially, at the na- especially nationally, because we get so caught up in, um, oh, that's socialized medicine, blah, blah, blah. You know, instead of really just taking the political out of that and really looking at you know, what do we want as a country? Do we want, you know, do we want to take care of our citizens when we know that this will, you know, help people stay employed, be able to go to their jobs, 
and actually ultimately pursue the, their life, liberty, and pursuit of ha- you know right. pursue happiness, right? And um, there's a middle ground because absolutely. we do have personal responsibility to make right. sure that children uh, go to their doctor's appointments and get mm-hmm. their immunizations and, and right. that you as a parent are doing the things that you need to do and that you as an individual are doing the things that you need to do to stay healthy. Right. But at the same time, there's there's a huge gap between like, for instance, if you are more affluent, if you have money, mm-hmm. you have a greater chance of living a long, healthy life than right. if you are poor in this country. Right. And that's just, I mean, to me, I see that as as a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you start talking about things like that, then all these political red flags like wealth redistribution and, yeah. you know, all these things start pop- popping up. Whereas I feel like there's probably some kind of a middle ground solution that... There it's it's hard be. because a lot of the is really polarized right now. Yes. It's either all or none. It's either you you're with me or you're against me, and that there's no discussion or compassion of empathy of the other right. side of the argument. Right, and so, unfortunately, what happens because we're at a stalemate? People, you know, things don't get better, and there are people out, out there that continue to suffer. You know, which yeah. is, I think, the real the reality of the situation we're in now. Um, yeah. It's interesting. So, at the beginning of the episode, um, we, we were kind of joking that I just got back from Cuba, which I actually did just get back from Cuba, which we all know is a communist country. Um, by the way, it was great. Um, had a great time. But um, I had a really interesting conversation with somebody who is Cuban. And one of the things that he said was that in, in our philosophy as, a Cuban, as Cuban people, there are two things, you know, the government and the people do business, right? But there are two things that we don't do business in, and that's education and healthcare. And everywhere I went, you know, uh, pe- there's a definite communal culture of health in Cuba. You know, I actually had like an inflamed eye while I was there. I don't know if it was allergies, but every single person I saw was like, hey, what's going on with your eye? And then they would tell me, you know, where I could go to get healthcare. So it's very, because I think that there is this philosophy that, in, at least in Cuba, and I know it's a communist country, so that's politically, like, yeah, dangerous to say. But in at least in that culture, because healthcare access is a right in the minds of Cuban people, there's also this very strong culture of health that, hey, this happened to you. This happened we to you. We need to fix it. Exactly. Versus, ooh, man, I really What'd hope you, you could. What you do to yeah, get that what, eye exactly. inflamed? It's like. Right. Or, oh, man, too bad you that. can't afford it. Or, too oh, bad. Exactly. So I thought that was very interesting. And obviously, Cuba isn't the only country that has a single payer system. You know, you have most of the developed I world. Would say the U.S. is the outlier. Exactly. In that, in that situation. Yeah. So. You know, you talk about having a middle ground. I think that there are a lot of great models out there that could help us meet that middle ground while staying true to American individualism and autonomy and that sort of those sort of American values. I think that there's still great 
models out there across the world that we could gain ideas and, um, you know, kind of a framework. Yeah. So that's well, my two cents. I feel like um, before we went any further with this podcast, it was important to kind of have this discussion. I and, totally agree. And I feel like going forward, we need to treat health as a human rights issue while also you know respecting the the truth that we do have a responsibility to ourselves but at the same time we have to kind of come together and look out for everyone too and i think that's why most people are in the field of public health because they they do care about their fellow man and woman you know they get in it because they're empathetic so yeah I don't necessarily think that health as a human right is hard for most public health professionals to latch onto. It's just, I think, the broader audience. Yeah. So, but we're going to keep working on that. We are. Now, okay, take a deep breath. Whew. We made it. We did it. We did it. We did we it, guys. We didn't solve the problem. Oh. Okay. Uh, uh, sorry, but we didn't. Oh, okay. We We did just have a nice little chat about it, though, and I hope that you, listener, enjoyed it. Um, now here's your reward. If you're driving, safely wait until you get to a computer. You better be buckled up. (laughs) And you better be buckled up. If you are at a computer, go ahead and pause this and search. Well, first of all, I'm going to ask you, Lindsay, have you seen the most recent episode of uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver? Oh my gosh, I haven't. I feel so bad admitting that. Okay, well... You are going to watch this as soon as we're done. Oh, yeah. And uh, I would like to urge the listener to search for the Bolivian traffic zebras. Oh, wow. Okay. On Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I'm not going to say any more about that, although I will say that it does relate to this show and public health in general. That's shocking, given the title you just gave, but okay. And... It is pure joy. Great. You are going to love it. It is well worth your time. So to repeat, yes, I said Bolivian Traffic Zebras, which sounds like it could be a really good band name. I was just going to say that. I can't wait to start that, uh, you know, reggaeton, I don't know, punk band. Yep. (laughs) All right. So we'll see you in a few minutes. Also, don't forget... After you're done, we have a interview with Dr. Glide, who is from New York University. We're going to talk about the Affordable Care Act, and there will be an actual bonus interview with Roy Grant. Bonus! Who, hey! And we're also going to ask him some further questions about his work and um, thoughts on vulnerable populations and policy um, regarding the ACA. So... Stay tuned. We'll wait for you to watch last week tonight, but we'll see you on the flip leaf said. That was terrible. <laughs> I, I can't speak. That's the fine. The flippity said. The flippity said. Bye, guys. <laughs> hey, so in this interview, we're about to say a bunch of words. Some of those words need definitions. Yes. I, you could even almost call this an explanatory comma, but 
that's kind of been trademarked by a bunch of NPR podcasts. So, so yeah, we thought we'd try to do something akin to what uh, Mr. George R. R. Martin did with the Game of Thrones, where at the back of the book, there's like, hey, am I talking about a Greyjoy or am I talking about a Lannister? Who's this guy? Where did he come from? Wow. Okay. And you got to like go to the back. It's a, it's a glossary, you know? That, yeah. Let's thank you for that Game of Thrones reference. You're welcome. So, um, well, let's begin. All right. What's Medicaid? Medicaid is a health care program that assists low-income families in paying for health care, and it is funded by the federal government, but run by states. Medicare is the federal health insurance program for people 65 and older or younger people with disabilities. The Affordable Care Act is also known as the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, a.k.a. the ACA. And in short, it was a law signed by President Obama in 2010. You've probably heard about it. The PPHF, or the Prevention and Public Health Fund, is the nation's first mandatory funding stream dedicated to public health programs. A deductible is a specific amount of money that a person with insurance must pay before the insurance company will pay for services or medications. A premium is the amount you need to pay up front to be insured, and that's usually on a monthly basis. The healthcare marketplace is a service that helps people shop for and enroll in affordable health insurance. These were established by the Affordable Care Act. Essential health benefits are services and products that health insurance companies are required to cover. This includes hospitalization, doctor's visits, prescriptions, etc. Hey, Lindsay, do you think they cover uh, Cheez-It overdoses? Um, probably not, but that might be something you should advocate to your local lawmaker. When I talk to my um, healthcare navigator, I'll have to look for a plan that covers that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you might be looking at maybe a platinum that's a, plan. That's, that's a, a pre-existing condition of oh mine. Gosh. <laughs> Let's hope they find a cure. Oh. <laughs> I think I'll have a 5K. I was just going to say that. All right. Well, enjoy this interview with Dr. Gleed. Uh, we really had fun time talking to her, and hopefully this helps make the listening experience a little more easy for you. Okay. Okay. All right, so here we are um, with Dr. Sherry Gleed. She is Dean of the Robert Wagner Graduate School of Public Service at NYU. She was also a professor of health policy and management at Columbia and uh, also served as Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, welcome to the show, Dr. Gleed. Thank you. Yes, thanks for thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So our first question uh, is, what was your role in the planning and implementation of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act? So it's funny to be answering this question today after last week. Um, yes. Yeah, pretty timely. Kind of a crazy time. And one of the things that really struck me in thinking about the experience last week is that um, a lot of the work that was done in planning the ACA actually began way back in about 1996. Um, mm -hmm. So even though it sounds like something that happened just after Congress was elected and President Obama was elected and so on, 
there had been an enormous amount of work being done in the health policy uh, analysis world trying to think about ways to move forward with health care reform under a variety of scenarios, whether it was a Republican-controlled Congress or what might be the different ways to go about um, expanding coverage, uh, and what were the models that were out there, and doing a lot of uh, uh, quantitative analysis of the ways different things would work, really beginning in 1996, accelerating after Romney care happened in Massachusetts um, in the mid-2000s, and then continuing into the election of President Obama. So I had been active in health policy analysis over this entire period and done a lot of work, some of which wound up playing a part in the design of the Affordable Care Act. But I was asked to join the administration um, in early 2009, actually, uh, just at the very beginning of 2009, and it took a year and a half for me to be confirmed because there was a Republican hold on a lot of confirmations. So oh, I actually wow. spent the first year and a half in New York um, continuing to do my thing, and I got to Washington after the law had already been uh, passed um, and worked on, as you probably know, a lot of the law has been implemented through regulations, and mm -hmm. it, um, I worked on a lot of those regulations. So our office, the Assistant Secretary, the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Planning and Evaluation, um, we actually developed the regulations around uh, get, keeping young adults under 26 on their parents' health insurance coverage. We also developed the regulations around the essential health benefits and around mm -hmm. uh, women's health benefits. So we were the office that brought you contraceptive coverage. Great. Um, <laughs> lots of different things, but it was all after the law had passed. Right. Awesome. Well, Interesting that, uh, that women were involved in making decisions about women's health. It is pretty astonishing. It, you know, some things have changed. Right. Um, even at that time, I, I do recall that when the contraceptive coverage recommendations came through, uh, one of the committees in the House, uh, the Republicans controlled the, the House at that point, and they had a committee hearing at which there were four men in black suits. All of them were clergy or other men, uh, mm -hmm. and it was this panel, and we just took a picture of it and had it on our wall. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah. Um, just a reminder of, uh, well, at that point, how far we had come, and then, well, maybe as a reminder now of how far we still need to go. So, indeed, indeed. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, so the first part of uh, this episode, we had a discussion about public health and and healthcare issues being framed as human rights issues and the role in governments uh, to provide and to, um, regulate. to regulate health and healthcare. And we kind of looked at some of the philosophical issues and some historical context. And uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about was what did, what did this look like before the Affordable Care Act? And so why was it needed? And, uh, what were some of the, the major gaps that it, that it filled? So um, you've already talked a lot about the history of all of this, but one of the things to keep in mind is that health insurance is a relatively modern problem and concept. It's really something that's only existed in most places since about the 1930s, and it's a consequence of the fact that our healthcare system can now do so much more for people than it ever could before. There was really no reason for people to have health insurance when doctors couldn't do anything for you to make you better. But now we all rely on healthcare and um, use healthcare for not only saving our lives, but making our lives more livable, being able to walk and talk and 
breathe and all the other things that we just take for granted that you can go to the doctor and get a nebulizer for your asthma or have your diabetes remain in control or be able to walk when you've broken a leg, all of those things um, are relatively, many of them are relatively recent phenomena. So as we've become better at able, able to take care of people's health, it's become more and more essential that people have health insurance. But health insurance at the same time has become more and more costly because it covers more and more things. And this is an inevitable consequence of improving technology. Um, in pretty much every single other country in the developed world, uh, in the economically advantaged world, uh, governments have at some point in this history stepped in and declared that part of their role was to ensure that every uh, citizen or legal resident of their country um, was able to afford some reasonable standard of health care and be able to get it through some means of health insurance. In the United States, we never really got to that point. And I think yeah. uh, what you saw happening is that over time, what, what happened in the U.S. is that for a while, private health insurance grew and a lot of people got coverage through their jobs. And then we got Medicare and that helped seniors get coverage. Um, and there was a safety net for the very poorest of the poor, um, particularly what, what we used to call the deserving poor, women with children who had no husband to support them, people with, who were blind or, or severely disabled. But for many other people, they were just being priced out of health insurance markets. They didn't have access to job-based coverage, and they were not able to really take advantage of all of this improvement in health that we've been able to get through our healthcare system. Yeah. Um, and what we saw beginning in about the early 2000s is that the private insurance market was beginning to fall apart and actually fewer and fewer people were getting coverage in private markets and more and more working class people, um, lower middle income people were being priced out of coverage. And so it, it actually, I think the probably the most important thing that the Obama administration effectively did is to say, this is a federal government responsibility. We need to make sure that everybody's got some ability to have health insurance coverage, that they actually mm -hmm. can afford health insurance coverage and get the health care that will benefit them. Yeah, because around you know the turn of the um, 20th century, the major government and, and health-related interventions include like sanitation infrastructure right. or um, developing vaccines and, and things like that. And once they, once those had been developed, then the the focus kind of shifted from that to health care and, and health insurance because we sort of had more infrastructure set up already. Um, but then that motivation to create federal government um, legislation about it seemed to kind of wane yeah. or, I, mean, or so, I don't know. So the interventions of the early 20th century um, were really public health interventions that affected many people. They were infrastructure-like investments. Um, some of it is vaccines, although vaccines are actually come, come somewhat later for most people, many of the vaccines beyond smallpox. But, you know, um, I was just looking. Some Harvard professor some long time ago estimated that it wasn't until about 1917, sometime 1920, that a visit to a doctor was more likely to do you good than harm. <laughs> All right. So before that, people did go to doctors, but there was really no good reason to be sending them there, right? That the doctors were mostly killing them. Or they um, could just, yeah, like uh, put leeches on you cups, and you know, cupping and bleeding, and uh, so it's really that's why I say, I mean, it really, it is increasingly a modern phenomenon that it's not it, it, public health infrastructure is terrifically, tremendously important, but we are really in an era where improving people's health through the delivery of personal health care is 
is quite important to people's well-being, and and that's why it's become necessary, I think, for for governments to ensure that they can do that. Yeah. So, with the news of last week, uh, it appears like the Affordable Care Act is still alive, at least for now. Um, what are some ways that it can be improved, and what are some of the the gaps that that still need to be filled for um, better service, lower costs, those kind of things? So, and what are those um, metrics? So from a coverage perspective, there are still a lot of people who are uninsured um, that we need to cover. Some of Many of them are in states that didn't expand Medicaid, so a big mm-hmm. push needs to be to get <laughs> Including Florida, states. which is where we are. Yeah. Many, get more states to expand Medicaid, because that's really important. And you know, people who only make 70% of the federal poverty line or 100% of the federal poverty line, they truly cannot possibly afford to pay for their own health care and health insurance. Exactly. It's not... It, I mean, if you look at the numbers and you look at what it means to be living at 100% of the federal poverty line, if anything should go wrong with you, there is no way that you are going to be able to pay for that care. So um, it's really essential that states expand Medicaid. But beyond that, um, there are some other elements of the of the program that really need improvement. One is, um, for a lot of people, the deductibles and cost sharing, especially for lower income people, are just too high, and we probably need more money there to make those programs a little bit, um, uh, help people get care a little bit more effectively. Um, We need to uh, increase subsidies, probably up the income scale a little bit, because there are a lot of people who just can't, who feel that they can't afford insurance, even though they're making three or 400% of the poverty level, but that's not that much money. So families, particularly at, 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 with medium incomes, probably need a little bit of help to buy coverage as well. Um, so we need to, to sort of strengthen the quality of coverage, improve the subsidies. And then um, we've gone with this model. Um, it's a fairly conservative model of having these marketplaces that sell private insurance for the people who are essentially in the gap between Medicaid coverage and employer-sponsored coverage. But there are not enormous numbers of people in those marketplaces. And that means that ensuring that insurers remain in them and that there's competition among insurers mm-hmm. is going to be a continuing challenge. Um, yes. And there are ways to, to address that challenge, uh, including ways that existed in the first three years of the Affordable Care Act, like reinsurance uh, programs and other things that kind of stabilize those marketplaces. But So there are ways to do this, but they have to happen. So things right. have to happen to, to keep insurers in those marketplaces, to keep them stable, to keep them competitive. Um, and and that needs to happen so that the costs of the marketplaces don't really uh, run amok and so that people really do have options. Yeah. Gotcha. And um, as I'm sure you know, this is a public health podcast. So uh-huh. I know we talk a lot about healthcare coverage when we talk about uh-huh. the ACA, but there were also some very important provisions that had to do with public health and specifically public health funding. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of those mechanisms are in the ACA that impact public health? Yeah, so there is a big prevention fund in the ACA that is really intended PPHF, to solve, yay. yay, to solve a big problem. I don't know whether any of your previous speakers have spoken about this, but one of the big problems that we have in public health in the U.S. is that the budget of the Centers for Disease Control, which is the Centers for Disease Control is the main arm of the federal government mm-hmm. that deals with prevention, and for historic reasons that really are not especially even partisan, the budget of the Centers for Disease Control is broken into thousands of tiny little pieces, mm-hmm. each of them associated with some concern, a disease, or interest group. And that gives the, that means that it's really hard to put into place effective public health prevention strategies that encompass multiple 
conditions, multiple diseases, multiple risk factors. But we know more and more that it's actually the same risk factors that are often uh, the cause of many different uh, problems, and we really want to go after them. So one of the reasons for going with the Public Health and Pre Prevention Fund is to give the CDC director and other people responsible for prevention some flexibility to design more encompassing, more community-oriented uh, strategies for prevention that will go beyond disease-by-disease disease thinking. I think that's really mm -hmm. important. I also, yes. just, I also want to note one thing about the, the relationship between coverage and prevention and, and public health, which I think is quite important, mm -hmm. which is that in the period when we did not have when we don't have universal coverage or near universal coverage, or in a place like Florida, which hasn't expanded its Medicaid program, mm -hmm. a great deal of the resources of public health get put into providing people with clinical services. Absolutely. That's not what they should be used for. And right. if, we can move public, if we can move clinical services into an insurance model so that mm -hmm. public health can actually focus on the public part of public health, yes. that will yes. actually be an enormous improvement. And one of the risks of losing the coverage expansions is that we dump all of this back on the public health system, mm -hmm. which then is no longer able to really focus its attention on what are the true public health problems. Yes. And yeah. I think that's, it's, that's a very interesting point, especially here in Florida, because a lot of our uh, public health departments, which are, you know, run under the state, but also as partnerships with the counties have moved away from clinical services. So even though we haven't expanded Medicaid in the state of Florida, Public health departments, which have historically been places where people who aren't insured or can't afford insurance go for basic primary care or whatever clinical services they right. can get, they no longer can get those. And we do have federally qualified health centers here. But, you know, if you're in and we know Florida, Florida has very rural areas. I mean, that's out of their reach geographically. Right. So right. that's so a, that's a really a real, good point. That's a real problem. So, yeah. Well, one of the really interesting things that I wanted to talk to you about is um, everyone seems to measure the success of the Affordable Care Act or the, the success of health-related legislation differently. It's either, oh, well, this is succeeding because look at the number of people who are insured now versus before. Mm -hmm. um, public health uh People like to measure things based on outcomes. So mm -hmm. the number of people who are uh, sick or dying is increasing or decreasing or what's, you know, right. there's so many different ways you can measure success to make uh, your point of view look correct. And I think a lot of people will like, they'll go into a discussion with a point of view and look for evidence that supports that point of view. And um they can make that look a lot of different ways. And I, one sort of deficiency that I've seen is a, a lack of a unified success metric. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can, you right. can cut it up. And I wonder what you think about that. So while I was at ASPE at the assist, as the Assistant Secretary, we created something called the Health System Measurement Project mm, because awesome. we thought it was really actually important to be able to assess how we were doing. And we spent a lot of time coming up with 10 buckets of um, issue areas that we thought were really important um, that you would measure success on. We thought if, but there's no way to have a single metric, but maybe if we had a limited number of metrics, and I think our aim was to have 50, we could see whether we were making progress on all of those 50 metrics. Um, I think it is probably, it was a huge effort to actually come down to 50 metrics. Since then, the Institute of Medicine has done a similar uh, exercise trying to come up with a set of metrics. Um, 
it's really, really hard because people have many things that they want out of health and healthcare. Um, and so it's always easy to say, well, this is good, but that is bad. Um, and, and maybe, so maybe, you know, an answer is there shouldn't be a single metric. And we're not going to be able to say whether the Affordable Care Act is overall a success or a failure because that's just not a, that's kind of a nonsensical way sure. to think about it, maybe. I'm, I'm just positing. A and instead, what we want to say is on this metric, we're doing better. And on that metric, we have work to do. Um, right. and, and, and perhaps we shouldn't be as, maybe if we were able to just think about things in that way, we would get out of this kind of partisan, this is a disaster, this is a, you know, fabulous thing, and go to, well, here are the places where we've got problems. Very, well, I, I really think that's a great point on, especially the, well, was it successful or not? Because if you don't necessarily have metrics to measure success, and even some of those metrics, it's it's not necessarily about success, but where where has the needle moved, right. you know, on certain things? So I think that's a really good point. You know, and I think a lot of the broader audience and the general public, they want to break it down into something like, well, was it successful? Especially when you hear so much rhetoric about, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, sinking ship, it's going to implode. You know, my first response normally is, well, why would you say that? How, how is it imploding? Like, can you give me some details on that? And normally because, you know, most of our news is digested in, you know, five second sound bites. It's hard to get, you know, those uh, really important details on how um, a huge, complicated piece of legislation like this is measured. So, um, so thank you, thank you for um, for answering all of our questions. We're going to kind of switch to something a little more topical. Okay. Uh, we always ask our guests at the end of um, the interview uh, what they're reading. Well, I have a funny answer to that, which is, oh. I, uh, uh, it's not really funny. It's an unexpected answer, which is that I, I switched my job some years ago from, from being at Columbia to NYU, which means that I have a commute of about 25 minutes on the New York City subway every morning and afternoon. And that was a real change for me. I had always uh-huh. walked essentially to work or oh. wasn't very far. So I decided to read the 100 greatest novels written in the English language. And I am Ooh. methodically oh, nice. making my way through that list. And I am now reading... Tom Jones, but I just finished reading Middlemarch. And what is really astonishing is that many of the problems that we have today, including in our healthcare system, show up even in these uh, 18th and 19th century novels of England um, and it's it, and, and, and novels of America. So one of the issues in Middlemarch is whether doctors should be paid for making visits or seeing patients, or should they be just paid for dispensing drugs? They used to be paid a fee for dispensing their drugs rather than a fee for consulting with patients. And you hear all of the neighborhood gossips talking about Uh what does it mean for the doctor to be charging actually a fee for seeing the doctor rather than just paying uh, more for for compounding the drugs. But I definitely recommend Tom Jones. It's quite a fun read. For people who might be interested in looking for um, this compilation, who assembled these hundred I'm books. using the one that was the, that's from the Guardian newspaper in okay. England, just because I Googled it, and that was the first one sure. that came up. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different lists, and and I haven't tried to make an undertaking like that yet, but it's like always on my to-do list. <laughs> it's a good thing to do. There, it's actually amazing how many really good novels there are. Yeah, yes. I see lists like 100 greatest films of all time, and I go, oh, I'm going to bookmark that, and then I never go back and look at it later. This has been great. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us and especially about something so important and 
very timely. All yes. Right. Well, good luck As the ACA. Yes. All right. So, Take care. Yep, you Thanks. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Viral. This podcast was written and produced by Lindsay Grove, that's me, and Quinn Lundquist. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and Easy Boys. If you like our podcast, let us know. Leave a review, tell your friends, but most importantly, make sure to always wash your hands. Hey, Lindsay here. I'm bringing you this week's public health fact. The World Health Organization was established as a member of the United Nations Development Group in 1948 and is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. Its mission is the attainment by all people of the highest possible level of health and has prioritized specific global communicable diseases like HIV, AIDS, Ebola, malaria, and their associated health issues. The WHO led the smallpox eradication across the globe and is currently working on polio eradication, achieving a 99% reduction in global cases.